We're going to read the Bible together just now. We're going to read from the book of Judges, chapter 2 and verse 6, right through to chapter 3 and verse 6. We're going to be thinking about this together, both um, children as they go out to their program and in here together. So we're going to read from Judges, chapter 2 and verse 6, down to chapter 3 and verse 6. And as we read, let's remember, this is the Word of God, and it's absolutely perfect. And so we can trust it completely. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived, for the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to their ways, even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Amen. We thank God for his word to us and trust that he'll help us to understand it 
as we come to look at it in a few moments' time. Do please open your Bible to Judges chapter 2. We're going to take a few moments to work our way through this chapter together. One of the things that I'm sure many of you find yourself doing from time to time is scrolling through Netflix or an equivalent, looking for something to watch. Um, You know what it's like. Very easily, you can spend half of your evening just scrolling and searching and not actually getting around to deciding what it is that you want to watch. Whenever that happens in our house, I'm one of those people who finds the little trailer or the little blurb helpful to read when it comes to deciding what it is that we're going to watch. That little paragraph or that little trailer can serve both as a summary of and an introduction to the film or the box set that we might be wanting to watch. It's intended to to sort of summarize everything that goes on, but also to whet your appetite for what it is that's going to happen next. In some ways, what we have in Judges chapter two is a little bit like that Netflix trailer or introduction for the rest of the book. It serves both to give a summary of the book as a whole, to tell us a little bit of what it's going to be like, but also then as a, as a second introduction to the book of Judges, building on what has already happened in Judges chapter one. And actually, the the patterns that we see unfold in this chapter are the patterns that we see repeating themselves time and time again throughout the rest of the book of Judges. And so actually, on the screen, you'll see that Judges 2 describes a cycle of destruction that becomes the plot line for the rest of the book. That cycle is repeated over and over again throughout the book of Judges. In fact, it's not so much a cycle as a downward spiral because the more you read of the book of Judges, the more you see that things get progressively worse and worse and worse so that by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, we're reading some of the darkest content in the entire Old Testament. If the book of Judges was a Netflix uh, series, It would be rated 18, it would have a warning for graphic content, and you would just know after a couple of episodes that it wasn't going to have a happy ending. So as we work our way through these verses this morning, I want us to have that cycle in mind, and I also want us to be conscious of the future. By that I mean I want us to notice what it takes for faith to be successfully passed on from one generation to the next, and to heed some of the warnings for us that I think are present in Judges chapter two. So what are we gonna see as we get into this this morning? Three things, I think. First of all, there's a a disobedient generation. Then we're gonna think about an unfaithful generation. And then we're gonna notice that there is hope even for this disobedient and unfaithful generation. First of all then, a, a disobedient generation. The context here is important. Judges chapter one, which we didn't read, describes the half-heartedness of God's people. They fail to obey God completely and wipe out the nations as he had commanded. If you know your Old Testament history, you will know that this is the older generation who had lived under Joshua's leadership, but even under his godly example, they had struggled to fully obey God. And yet if you look closely at Judges chapter two, verses six to nine, they are a generation that are described in a fairly positive light Verse seven in particular tells us that they were a people who served the Lord and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. So they were a flawed and imperfect generation and yet they are described in a reasonably positive light. It begs the question, what would a truly idolatrous generation look like and how would they be described? 
Well, unfortunately, we don't have to wait very long to find that out. Because if you look down with me at verse 10, it tells us exactly what they're like. That generation of people who lived under the leadership of Joshua died. They were replaced by another generation who are described in less than flattering terms. It says, they neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And verse 11 tells us that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. So already the author is painting this contrast for us between one generation and the next. It's a very vivid and stark contrast. There is one generation who were flawed and imperfect but served the Lord and another generation who have forsaken God and are serving the Baals. And so as we think about this disobedient second generation, the question that I want to ask is why? Why does this happen? Why do their allegiances change? Why do they fall so catastrophically into sin? Well, the key lies for us in that little phrase in verse 10. Look at it again. These ought to be pretty harrowing words for us in a church like this. A generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. That's the problem. A whole generation had grown up and they didn't know God. Now listen, it's not that they didn't know about God. In fact, it would have been almost impossible for them not to know about God. In all likelihood, they heard the stories of the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea and the collapse of the walls of Jericho. I have no doubt that this next generation listened really well in Sunday school and in youth group and they knew all of the answers, at least from an intellectual perspective. But the problem was that these things weren't personal for them. The stories of what God had done for their forefathers remained just abstract stories for them. They had no impact whatsoever on their day-to-day living in Canaan. The problem was that this next generation didn't know God in their hearts. If we were to say what they were like or to describe what they were like, we could say that God just didn't matter very much to these people. Their whole relationship with him was characterized by apathetic formality rather than passionate reality. You know, history tells us that this description of decline can happen so easily when it comes to the gospel. It was Don Carson who suggested that it can easily be the case that one generation believes and proclaims the gospel, the next generation assumes the gospel, and then the third generation denies the gospel altogether. But actually here in Judges 2, the decline is even faster than that, isn't it? How many generations does it take for the people of God to go from entering the promised land to worshiping the Baals? One. Or if we'd have phrased that question a little bit differently for a modern setting, how many generations does it take for a church to die? One. A few years ago, I read an article in The Spectator. It really caught my eye, mostly for its title as much as anything, but it was entitled 2067, the end of British Christianity. It was undoubtedly a somewhat hyperbolic headline, but it was interesting nonetheless, and there was a few quotes from it that really stuck in my head when I read it. The author, Damien Thompson, wrote these words. I think these should be on the screen as well. It's often said that Britain's church congregations are shrinking, but that doesn't come close to expressing the scale of the disaster now facing Christianity in this country. Every 10 years, the census spells out the situation in detail. Between 2001 and 2011, the number of Christians born in Britain fell by 5.3 million, about 10,000 a week. 
If that rate of decline continues, the mission of St. Augustine to the English together with that of the Irish saints to the Scots will come to an end in 2067. Now the author himself recognized that projection is not the same thing as prediction and there are all sorts of holes in his argument that we might want to pick, I'm sure. Nonetheless, it is a reminder for us that the cause of the gospel in these lands is incredibly urgent. We are living in a cultural moment where the church is under pressure and in an era that could be described as being more and more post-Christian. We were praying for gospel work in Europe in our prayers of intercession. We could just as easily have been praying for gospel work in mainland Britain, England, Wales, UK. Yorkshire is full of people, five million people, same population roughly as the nation of Scotland. You know what percentage of Yorkshire profess an evangelical Christian? 0.4%. 0.4%. That's the equivalent of somewhere like Japan with little or no historic Christian witness. Make no mistake about it, we are living in a very, very different era that could be described as being pretty post-Christian. There are lots of things that the church might want to do today in order to avoid the pitfalls of Judges chapter two, but I would want to suggest that at the very top of her list of priorities should be the faithful teaching, instructing, and handing down of the faith to the next generation. At least one of the commentators suggests that the dire situation described for us in Judges chapter two comes about because of the failures of the previous generation to effectively pass on the faith. In particular, to to live out the call of Deuteronomy chapter six, to faithfully be a covenant community that teaches and commends God and faith in him to those coming after them. So if the children and young people in this place are to make it through to maturity in Christ, then they are going to need the covenant community of the entire church family to get them there. Their spiritual formation is not going to happen by osmosis. They need people to teach them the faith, yes, but they also need a whole church family to show them what it actually means to live for Jesus day by day. And they need people who are going to be prepared to do that for them in a culture that is increasingly saying, you shouldn't do that. That is going to be the great challenge for the church today. We're gonna spend lots of time next Saturday unpacking how we might do that in our particular cultural moment. If you are at all interested in the fate and faith of the next generation, please do come next week. Even if you're not a parent, even if you don't help with youth and children's ministry, please do come. We're gonna be thinking about lots about the, the culture in which we're living in and why it's really important for the church to be faithful. You will have heard it said, I'm sure, that it takes a village to raise a child Whenever I'm traveling around the the UK and Ireland with growing young disciples, I often say that it takes a church to raise a Christian, not just a youth leader, not just their parents, but a church. And we want to be doing that for all of these little ones and the teenagers that are connected with this place. It takes a church to raise a Christian. So we're to learn from the warnings of this disobedient generation. Secondly then, let's think about an unfaithful generation. You might think that that sounds really similar to what we've just said. In some ways it is, but I want to hone in on the problem of idolatry that we notice in this chapter in particular. Look with me at verses 11 to 13 of Judges chapter two. It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. 
So we have a bit of work to do here to understand what it is that's going on. Baal and Ashtoreth were the Canaanite gods of fertility. Baal was the male god, Ashtoreth his female counterpart. And the Canaanites believed that their whole existence was dependent on the actions of these gods. So for there to be good crops and good weather and good livestock and good fertility for families, it would be because the gods were happy. The whole religious system of these people was structured in such a way that the gods had to be coerced into bringing blessing. And the people would attempt to bring this blessing about by worshiping the gods as fervently as possible. It's one of the great differences, of course, by the way, between paganism and biblical Christianity. In paganism, the gods have to be coerced. The God of the Bible deals with his people by means of his grace. But here the people of Israel had forgotten about the one true God, and they tried to fulfill that void in their lives by worshiping these false gods. I hope you noticed it as we read through. The author is incredibly strong in his language when he describes the people's idolatry. Look with me again at verse 17. It says, Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's command. It's a pretty graphic description of just how painful idolatry is for God and of how destructive it is for his people. Israel was in covenant relationship with God and as a result had covenant obligations, namely to be faithful to God alone, but here she was rejecting the love and security of that relationship for the empty and fleeting pleasures of other gods. They prostituted themselves to other gods. And of course, when we come to this text in our day and our time, we're meant to see that this spiritual adultery is our issue as well. Truth is, and it is a deeply uncomfortable truth for us to face up to, that oftentimes we can be no better than these people. We too find ourselves seeking comfort in the arms of false lovers, it can be incredibly easy for people like us to read this story and dismiss these actions as those of a sinful and primitive people who should have known better. But brothers and sisters, just because we aren't worshiping Baal and the Ashtoreths doesn't mean that we do not have a problem with idolatry. It is entirely possible for us to act in the exact same way as these people in our hearts. And one of the things that we are meant to notice throughout the whole Old Testament is that the history of God's people is punctuated with the problem of idolatry. It is a plague that persistently plights the people of Israel. It seems that at almost every juncture of Old Testament history, idolatry rears its head. Whether it's under the leadership of Moses or Joshua or the judges or the monarchy or the prophets or the priests, idolatry is always a problem for God's people. It is the biggest sin in the Bible, and it remains an enormous problem for the church today. I do wonder, in and amongst the plethora of challenges that are facing the church of Jesus Christ today, if the top problem is still our idolatry and our propensity to look for security and meaning and significance in the arms of false lovers. Tim Keller says of this passage, and this is a really, really challenging quote. He says, the great danger, because it is a subtle temptation which enables us to continue as church members and feel as though nothing is wrong, it's an enormous danger for us, is not that we become atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with the idols in our hearts. We each have an incredible capacity to, to wink at our sin and idolatry, don't we? 
to play it down, to make a truce with it even. The whole Bible really is punctuated with the problem of idolatry. And the scriptures are screaming at us again and again and again and again. It doesn't work. You cannot serve God and fill in the blank. Just thinking about how to apply this this morning. Could have spent lots of time going through some of the different idols that are prevalent in our post-Christian culture. Money, sex, power, comfort, family, education, career. The list goes on and on and on. None of that will be particularly new to you, I expect. In fact, I almost sort of wonder if when we hear that word idolatry in church, we sort of expect those words to be mentioned as well. All of those idols are very real in our culture. They are often just as prevalent within the church as they are outside of the church. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the the idol that we need to think most carefully about, particularly when it comes to our children and young people, is the idol of the self. We're going to talk lots about this next weekend. It's a book that I've read in the past six months that I think has probably been the most helpful book I've read in the last year. Um, It's a book called Pride by Matthew Roberts. And then he says this, I think it's a really helpful insight for us. He's talking about idolatry. He says, it's not saying too much to say that the crisis of identity in the West at present is at root a worship crisis. We have thought that we could dispense with the worship of God, which has been at the center of European culture for a millennium and a half, and retain, indeed enhance, our understanding of ourselves. In the place of the living God, we have worshiped our freedom and ourselves, and it has shriveled us. Idolatry always does. If you focus your loves on yourself, you will consume yourself, To find our real humanity, we must refocus ourselves and our love on the God who made us. Friends, our children and young people are living in a world that is seeking to convince them all the time that their lives are their own and that they belong to themselves and that true identity and meaning is found by looking within and expressing outwardly whatever it is that they find there. And it is a lie. It is a lie. We went to London for a week on holidays. We took our, our kids, a four-year-old and two-year-old. We spent a whole afternoon in Hamleys, would you believe? And when we were there, um, there was a whole floor dedicated to Barbie because she's making a comeback. Um, and when we were there, there was a, a big photo frame that you could stand in and take a selfie or get a photograph taken. And the photograph had um, this little quotation behind it or, or below it. You can, you can be anything. You can be anything. It sounds so subtle, doesn't it? And yet it is a really, really powerful lie. And it has been drip-fed to our children and young people and us 24-7. It really is the catechism of our culture. And it is subliminally trying to teach our children that their lives are their own. And they can do with them whatever they want. The Bible says that we have been bought at a price and that our lives belong to God. And we need to be saying that consistently to them. But more than that, brothers and sisters, we need to be modeling that consistently to them so that they see what it looks like to live faithfully for Jesus Christ in a culture that all the time is saying, live for yourself. You can be anything. We need to face up to the challenges that come with our idolatry. And actually, to take us back to the text, one of the things that we're meant to notice in these verses is that idolatry always leads to misery. Look with me at Judges chapter 2 and verse 15. 
It says, when Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. So Israel finds themselves fighting their enemies, whose very gods they had chosen to serve, and they are crushed by them. If ever there was a vivid picture of how idolatry leads to slavery and ruin, then this is it. These gods promise so much, and it's not that they deliver nothing. It's that they can only bring pain and distress and destruction. And so this chapter warns us not to set up idols in our hearts instead of or alongside the living and the true God. It warns us that sin always enslaves and entangles. It warns us not to center our lives on anything or anyone else other than Jesus Christ. Thirdly and finally then, we see hope for even this sinful generation. But before we get to the hope, look at how God responds to the spiral of sin. He is provoked to anger. I'm sure you noticed that as we were reading through. We see that in verse 12. We see it again in verse 14. We see it again in verse 20. And yet God's anger here is in keeping with his character. It is a faithful anger. The anger of a husband who has been betrayed by his wife. He is jealous for his people in the purest sense. He will not share them with other gods. And actually, we're meant to notice that by the end of chapter two and on into chapter three, that he decides to leave some of the Canaanite people present in the land as a test for Israel. And that test was to see whether or not they would develop a greater dependence on him or whether they would crumble. And of course, the tragedy of the beginning of chapter three is that they feel the test. They give in to their sinful desires They become just like the nations around them rather than living distinct lives from the nations around them. In fact, one of the features of the book of Judges is that as we read on, it becomes almost impossible to distinguish the covenant people of God from the pagan nations around them. Look at the the very last verse that we read, chapter three and verse six. It is a, a harrowing condemnation of the plight of the people. It says, they took their daughters in marriage, they gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. So God's people sink deeper and deeper into sin and we are left wondering, despairing even, how is the next generation going to turn out? A generation that is half Israelite and half Canaanite. You can only imagine how little regard they will have for the things of God. So the picture is bleak. Astonishingly, there is still grace and some shards of hope even in this chapter. And we see just how committed God is to his people. Look with me at chapter two and verse 16. It says, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. And then verse 18 tells us how the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. So even when his people are rebelling against him and openly defying him, God's heart is for and towards his people. What have they done to deserve his compassion? Nothing. They have brought him nothing but heartache and misery and disappointment, but he is moved by their misery. He is bound by faithfulness to his own covenant with these people. He has promised for better or for worse to be their God, and he will be. And in this passage, and throughout the rest of the book, hope comes in the form of the judges. They remind us that God is still at work among his people, that he will not abandon them, no matter how difficult they are to live with, And yet despite the rescue of the judges, it's never long before the people slip back into their old habits. We see that even in chapter two. 
The people are obedient as long as the judge lived, but once the judge died, they become more corrupt than ever before. In fact, another feature of the book of Judges is that as things begin to unravel, the rebellions that the people commit are more and more severe. The revivals that happen are more and more flawed. The judges themselves are more and more problematic. The people reveal their true nature when the constraint of the judge is lifted. They tolerate God for a while, but it's never long before they find themselves throwing, or before they're throwing themselves at the feet of the Baals. They are enslaved to sin, and rebellion is in their blood. We're meant to see, as we read this story and others, that none of the judges can bring about the rescue that is required. They offer hope for a while, but the salvation that they bring is never permanent because they are just shadows of what is really need, what is really needed. A perfect judge who wouldn't just bring us a temporary fix, but one who would really change us from the inside out. A judge who won't just bring us back to God for a while, but a judge who will reconcile us to God forever. And as New Testament believers here this morning, we read this story and the whole of the book of Judges through the lens of the gospel. We know that this perfect judge does come. He lives a life of perfect obedience to God. He comes to wage war against our great enemies of sin and death. He breaks the cycle of destruction that has so plighted God's people for so long. But the only way that he can do that is by his own death. He breaks the vicious cycle of sin by absorbing it and taking it into himself. He is the husband who pays the price for his bride's betrayal. He is the king who takes the punishment on behalf of his people. He is the true judge who dies to save us from the hands of our enemies. And he does it all so that people like us, whose lives are still so punctuated with the problem of idolatry, might truly know the forgiveness of our sins and have the hope of life everlasting. Friends, you know the name of this judge. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he really is our only hope both in life and in death. And for all of the struggles that you face as a parent and in your family life, And for all of the challenges that you face as a church family, for all of the complexities of gospel ministry in our lifetime, friends, he is the one that we need more than anything else in the whole world. And if you're here today and you know that your life is punctuated with the problem of idolatry and you think that you can find meaning and joy and satisfaction in life in your idols, he is saying to you, you are wrong and that you need him more than anything else in the whole world. And if you are trusting in him and you know him and you still find that you are drawn to your idols, then he invites you to come to him again today in repentance and faith, knowing that he promises to never leave you nor forsake you, that he promises that he will bring to completion the work that he has begun in you, extending to you once again his love and his mercy and his grace. He is the one we need more than anything else. He is the one that we are to commend to our children and young people. He is the only one who can make sense of their lives and the only one who can make sense of ours. Let's come to him in prayer just now. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for these stories that we read in your word. We thank you that as we read them at a a deeper level, they read us and they expose our hearts and our desperate need for the grace of Jesus Christ. We take a moment just now to 
pause and examine our own hearts and in doing so to confess our own idolatry to you? Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ knows and sees us right down to the very bottom and yet he is the good shepherd who was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. We throw ourselves upon his grace and mercy today and ask that you will thrill us afresh with the security that comes from knowing him. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.